I mentioned, uh, we have our baptism today, and that's just a joyous, joyous, it's a big deal. I know in, in evangelicalism today, it's kind of been watered down. We'll talk about that in just a little bit, but I want us to understand the importance of baptism. That's why I'm taking this time to actually preach a, a sermon on baptism, and um, just just to understand the, the nature of it, what it is what it's not, why we do it, what it teaches and shows us, what it means, and then kind of living in the light of our baptism as Christians, man. It's a great privilege, it's a great honor, and a great duty. We need to take it very, very seriously. So um, we will get back to Romans uh, next week, um, but for today we are going to stick with the theme of baptism. So in saying that, we'll be... Uh, Looking at different passages today, we'll be flipping around the scriptures, so we'll be getting there. But just to begin with, what it is and what it isn't. What is baptism, first of all? Well, uh, it's a little confusing at times, I think, for some people. Simple in some ways, difficult in other ways. It is an ordinance that has been instituted by Jesus Christ for his glory and for our good. Very simply put. So in Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20, we read this. Oh, Matthew 38, that's okay. It's really Matthew 28, but that's okay. It's, it's, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There it is. That's the institution of baptism. That's, a, that's why we do it. It's been ordained by Christ. We're commanded by Christ. Just like with the Lord's Supper, he said, do this. He tells us to do this as we believe. Make, make, disciples, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that which I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All right. I do want to take a moment and talk about some of the nuance between a sacrament and an ordinance. It's kind of confusing, and oftentimes, like if you're, been, if you're familiar with church lingo, you know that we, we talk about the sacraments. So we'll say sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper, but also um, Protestants like to refer to them more as ordinances because they've been ordained by Jesus Christ for his people. But it, it gets confusing. There's some confusion there. Sometimes they're used synonymously. There's a close connection, to be sure, with with each term there, you know, sacrament and ordinance. Uh, Even our catechism, the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 92 says, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance. There it is, instituted by Christ, whereby sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. By sensible, he means the things that we see and do. So today, you're going to see baptism take place. Those are those signs that, that come through in that way. Uh, but in a more technical way, just so you're clear on this a little bit, that, again, the ordinance is that which has been ordained by Jesus Christ. Go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He does so with the Lord's Supper as well. And an ordinance, especially as we think about it, is that which symbolizes spiritual realities. It is deeply, deeply symbolic. There's deep symbolical, symbolic significance to this. So when you're put under the water, that you're buried with Christ and then you're raised up with him, there's symbolism in that. That teaches us something about the nature of salvation in our relationship to Jesus Christ. So it's very, the ordinances uh, are, are symbolizing kind of the outward sign of the inward reality of what God has done for us inside by the Spirit. Does that make sense? Do you get that? That's the the ordinance idea. Now, 
Don't get me wrong, they're not devoid of spiritual significance. As you sincerely partake in the ordinances and baptism and the Lord's Supper, even when you're reading the word sincerely, you're praying, all these things, they're, they're, we, we are built up spiritually. We're encouraged. When you think about your baptism and you praise God for that, you are encouraged. You are strengthened spiritually. There's no doubt about that. So it goes beyond mere symbolism, just like with the Lord's Supper. Remember Paul said to those in Corinth, if you don't eat correctly, if you don't come to the table correctly, What's going to happen to you? That's that's there. There's there's um, consequences to that. You know, some of you are sick. Some of you have, have fallen asleep. So so there is that spiritual aspect to it as well. But ordinances, the ordinance is is kind of presses that symbolic meaning, the the picture of what's actually taking place. So that's kind of the way we use ordinance. Now sacrament. Again, this can be interchanged in some ways, but technically sacramentalism, that's a different story, and that's a big deal. That's why we tend to say ordinance, because when you get into the sacrament or sacramentalism, that's different when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper and, and other sacraments. There are no others, but um, a Roman Catholic Church would say they have seven. But anyway, a sacrament technically is that where there, where grace is efficacious. Right? It's a means of efficacious grace. It, it, the sacraments themselves produce or effect change in the participant. You see the distinction now? It's more, way more than symbolic. It's efficacious. It actually dispenses God's grace through the sacrament. So just as an example, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, um, and others, some others have this view of the sacraments. But from the Roman Catholic Catechism, listen to this. It says, the sacraments are efficacious. That means they do something in you, actually. They transform, they change. Efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ, entrusted to the church, by which the divine life is dispensed to us. So, in other words, and this is a big distinction. This is why a big reason why we're Protestant and not Catholic. It is a big deal, because we do not believe that the ordinances confer grace, actually change us from the, from the inside in that way. So we're doing baptism today. A lot of you have seen this. I like to illustrate it for those who haven't, but it's like this. So when we talk about grace being conferred upon people, if you're a Roman Catholic, you're a baby. How many of you are raised Roman Catholic or have been to Roman Catholic christening or baptism? So a lot of us have. You understand that. Well, here's the idea about grace being conferred, grace being efficacious. Baby, sin. Baby, sinful. Baptism, during that ceremony, during that service, this is the grace of God actually infused into the soul of that baby. So at that moment, that baby is holy. Understand? But very quickly, because of our sin nature, you lose a little bit of that grace. And then you lose a little bit more, but then what do you do? You go to confession, you get a little bit more. You lose that grace. So this is, do you understand? So when you're married, Roman Catholic, that's one of the sacraments, you get a little bit more, right? Does this make sense to you? So this is God's grace in you, and you can't get to heaven unless you are filled to the top with grace. So what happens when you die? Remember, if we're Roman Catholic, we die, where'd you hope to go? 
Yeah, why? Because you're not filled with that grace completely. While you're in purgatory, people are praying for you. People are paying masses for you. So you're filling that grace up. So when you're fully, objectively righteous, you go to heaven. See, that's a big deal when we talk about the sacraments. I, I love that little illustration because it's right on. It makes the point. It makes the point. It does. That's, that's why we do not believe the Bible teaches that the ordinances confer grace. They're a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. That's for sure. But this is a huge, insurmountable obstacle between Protestants and Catholics. And that is a big deal. You can't have true fellowship when you think this way because this goes to the heart of salvation and the heart of justification. So when they're saying, you are born again once those waters of baptism cover you, once you're baptized in that way. When we say, no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you're born again when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by regeneration. Amen? That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So we can say, well, that's okay if you believe like that, and that's okay if you believe like that. No, here's what we believe, here's what you believe, but we have to come to the agreement, what does the Bible actually teach, and be settled on that. So just so you understand, the, the difference between kind of a, a sacrament and ordinance, why we tend to say ordinance, but I know that I've said sacraments before. This will be a little technical there, but baptism does signify our participation in the new covenant. That's what it does. Jeremiah 31, 33, the promise of the new covenant, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So baptism is a sign of our fellowship with Christ and his death and his resurrection, and it's symbolized, right? When we go under we or we're covered by the water, we die to self, we die to sin. It's a picture of that. As we are in, in the water, we're being washed, we're being cleansed from, from our sins, forgiven as it were, and then we're raised up to newness of life, fully dedicated to Christ in our love, our obedience, our faithfulness. Baptism teaches this. It's a big deal for us, and we need to take it seriously. We need to think on our baptism. Why we do it? Well, he commanded it, right? Jesus commands us to do it, to be, to be baptized. It's a necessary act of obedience. Some will say it's the first act of obedience as a Christian. Because now that I'm a Christian, I want to identify with Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed, man. That's why people, you know, I don't know if I want to be baptized or I'm kind of embarrassed. Man, when he changes you, when you know who you are in Christ, you know this. I see some smiles on your faces because you know you couldn't wait to be baptized because I want to identify with Jesus Christ and I want the world to know that I belong to him. Amen? So he commands it in that way. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, now when they heard this, Peter's preaching the gospel, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and, and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our profession of faith and our baptism go together. They go together. Now, does it mean if you make a profession of faith or truly converted and you're not baptized, you will not go to heaven? No, you'll still go to heaven. Now, there are the Christian church and there are Christian Protestant denominations that teach that, man, that you need to repent, you need to believe, and you need to be baptized in order to get into heaven, right? I had, I had a dealings with that in, in the past, and that's, that's not, you know, it kind of would seem like that. The point of passages like this, repent, believe, be baptized, Right? No, 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 no. If you repent and you believe truly, that means that you're already regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So if you died at that moment without being baptized, you would go to heaven. But just so you know, there are denominations out there that say repent, believe, and be baptized before you can get into heaven. They take away the symbolic aspect of it. So 
It's outward picture of the inward reality. We're publicly demonstrating and telling the world that we belong to Jesus Christ. We're not ashamed to be followers of Christ, and, and we, we put it out there. Too many Christians are ashamed today. We're embarrassed to be followers of Christ. Like, if they really know what we believe and teach, they'll hate us. They'll think we're crazy. We'll think, you know, obviously that, that we're, not, we're not with it. So um, this is our baptism says, I'm not ashamed. I'm, I'm identifying with Christ. It was the pattern of the New Testament. It was given to those who made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, does everybody make a profession of faith in Christ saved? No, we understand that. But if there's a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we take that on faith and we baptize in that way. So there's a concern also, um, on, on the one hand, obviously with a Roman Catholic view, how it confers grace, but there's a concern on the other side of that, for me at least, and, and I hope for many others, that there's been such a low view of baptism in many of the Protestant circles and Protestant churches. It is just kind of an add-on, you know. It's, yeah, okay, do this. Or I've seen it become like an event, you know, like, oh, we're going to have a baptism service today, and we're going to meet by the river, and people are going to come down. I sit, it was on somewhere, they met at the point or something like that, and you know, all these people come down, and some dude's out there preaching this, and all right, if you believe, now we're going to be baptized in the river, and it's kind of like a cool thing to do. It just it just robs it of its of its depth of its nature of its glory. People don't really understand what what it means, you know. But, it, but it's kind of cool, and, and we'll do this. And then other churches just have okay Wednesday nights. Some of the mega churches Wednesday nights are baptism night, and you know if you want to be baptized, come on Wednesday night. And it's not it's there's not there's not a reverence to it. There's not just like with the Lord's Supper. So many churches. Oh, if you just want to join us for the Lord's Supper, you can. Forget about you know any of the being a true Christian or examining yourself. We've become so loose on those things, man. Just really, really um, disturbing. And but it's just kind of the way things are going. It's kind of the trend, isn't it? It's kind of put these off to the side. They're they're not that big a deal. I, I had one woman I talked to. I used to work with when I was driving a school van. And she told me, she was going to a charismatic church, and she said, well, she's going to take her granddaughter, who's like 12 years old. I think her parents were Catholic, but she was going to take her to the wave pool and baptize her because she made a profession of faith. Take her to the wave pool and baptize her? Because I was like, I thought she was joking, so I laughed, and she got mad at me because I laughed. But we had a discussion after that, right? But this is where we find ourselves. We make a mockery of her. We can't do that. Now, that's a true story. I mean, I, so what is it? What's it show us? What's it teach us? What's it mean? It's just such depth to it. That's listen, what it means is that we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So we're Christian. And therefore, we're members of the new covenant in Christ's blood. That's what that is. That's what it symbolizes. That you are a Christian. That you were lost and now you're found. You were blind. Now you see you're dead and now you're alive in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. You were, you were, you were dead. You're, you're outside of Christ. Now you're in Jesus Christ. You're part of the new covenant, part of his body in Christ's blood. Amen. So in Colossians, I'm going to ask you to please turn with me to Colossians chapter two, if you would, in your Bibles, Colossians chapter two. And Paul is talking about us being alive in Jesus Christ and what it means to, to be in him and who he is. The fullness of deity dwells in him. And in Christ, look at verse um, 11 and 12. He says, 
Look, first he's, he's warning us in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deception according to human tradition, which is happening all around us today. Christians are just being fooled. Christians are just giving in. We're not discerning. We're not saying, okay, that doesn't line up with the Bible. We're just saying, well, if it makes you feel good, that's cool. He's saying, no, no, no. Don't let anybody take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Because in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And you have been fill, filled in him who is the head and rule of all, of all, and authority. I'm sorry, who is the head of all rule and authority. And then verse 11, he says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's talking about true salvation at that point. In the Old Testament, circumcision at its deepest level always meant what? A pure heart. It wasn't just cutting of the foreskin. It wasn't just that sign there. That was part of it. But ultimately, remember Deuteronomy 30? God said, I'm going to circumcise your heart. That's going to make you mine. That's when you believe. In Jeremiah 2, they were told to circumcise. In Jeremiah also, they were told to circumcise their hearts. That's what true belief is. It's not just an outward symbol. It, it meant so much more. So Paul's saying this, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's regeneration. That's, being, that's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And then he equates that to baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So listen, and this is really important to get, the new covenant, new covenant fulfillment of circumcision is not baptism. That's not the fulfillment of, new co- of, of, the, of, of, of circumcision. Understand that. What's the fulfillment of old covenant circumcision, of the, of the foreskin, of the person being circumcised? It was a circumcision made without hands. That's, the, that's, the, that's what he's saying here. That true circumcision that's made by the Holy Spirit, that true circumcision that's made by God, that true circumcision that brings regeneration. He's the one who changes our heart. And baptism symbolizes that. So that's why he says, you've been circumcised by the putting off of the body. It's made without hands. It's not something we do. It's something that the Holy Spirit does. So the new covenant fulfillment of circumcision isn't baptism. It's a circumcision made without hand. It's regeneration, right? Deuteronomy 30, I'm going to circumcise your hearts. That's true circumcision. Baptism, then, is the sign and seal of that. That's what shows us. That's what, that's what it, it teaches us outwardly, that what he does inwardly. So in the New Testament, baptism was given to repentant, professing, believing people, right? And so it points, since it's given to people that believed in Christ, who professed Jesus Christ, Baptism itself points back to something that's been accomplished by the Holy Spirit in you. So when we're baptized, we're saying, Jesus did this in me, and that's what this is showing. I believe in him. I'm trusting in him. So, so it, it points back to an accomplished reality and not just a future hope. So the, the kids were circumcised or when infants are circumcised, they're kind of pointing to a future hope that maybe, you know, at some point they'll be regenerated. God will work in their hearts and it points to that. But it, here it says, no, no, no. It points back to what he's already done in our hearts. The apostles baptized repentant, believing people. That's the pattern in the New Testament. This is why we do it. So Matthew 28, remember we had it up there before Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, 
Making disciples all nations. Where do you begin to make this? How do you begin to make a disciple? What's step number one? How does one even become a disciple of Christ? Am I just going to go teach Joe Schmo on the street about Jesus and about Christianity? What has to come first to make a disciple? You need to preach the gospel to them, right? That's number one. So we need to preach. So making disciples begins with preaching the gospel. There's more to it, but it starts there. Because if you're not a Christian, you can teach them about Christianity all you want, all day long, but it's not going to mean too much to them. And the moment they disagree with something you're saying, bye-bye, they're gone, right? You know this. That's nothing new. So he says, make disciples. And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gives us the formula. And then he goes on to say, teaching them to observe. Teaching them to observe. So that means whoever you're baptizing, you need to be teaching, right? So you're teaching them. You're discipling them in that way, in Christ. And when he says to observe, that word actually means that that person being taught has the ability to comprehend, has the ability to carry out. Understand? So when he says that, go make disciples, that's, that, is, that was the, the command to go out. So in Acts chapter 16, if you want to turn with me to Acts 16, I know it's a little technical here, but we're laying the foundation. This is why we baptize. This is why we do it. This is why it's important and significant in what it means. Don't worry, the fireworks are coming. Uh, Acts chapter 16. And and this is when the Philippian jailer was converted. We could look at many other of the um, accounts of, of where conversion and baptism takes place within households, Lydia, Cornelius and so forth, but we're going to look at, at the Philippian jailer just for time's sake. So Acts 16, 31 through 35. Um, this is the Philippian jailer. You know, you know the story. At midnight, the earthquake comes. People run out, and, and he wanted to kill himself. Paul said, don't do that. He said, what must I do to be saved? In verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. And then it goes on to say, Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay. Um, <clears throat> notice that they spoke the word not just to the Philippian jailer you know, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ but then we're told in verse 32 that it was spoken to all the household so when they went back to the household they were preaching the gospel to whoever was in that household and so those who believed would have been baptized because we're told later on that they rejoiced greatly in verse 34 it says he brought them up set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household. His whole household rejoiced that he believed in God. So they rejoiced greatly in the Lord. And that's very significant because if you know anything about human nature, if you know anything about, if you're a Christian today, how many of you whose family is not Christian rejoice greatly when you were converted and baptized? How many? If they're not Christian. How many are still rejoicing and baptizing now? Right? 
That's a big deal. That's very significant there. The word was spoken to all who were in the household. So it wasn't just, oh, well, we're just going to baptize the infants or just everybody who's in the household. It was spoken to. And the clear, clear implication is those who receive the word. Would, you can only greatly rejoice with somebody who's saved if you know what that means to be saved. Just think about that. My family didn't rejoice when I was baptized. So what are you doing? You've already been baptized. You're Catholic. <laughs> you know? Why are you doing that? There's, there's, there's no real joy. They're not coming along. Some might say, well, that's good for you if you like that. You know, that's for you, right? But they're not rejoicing, man. They're not saying, praise God. Yes, yes, you belong to Christ. They're not coming alongside. Nobody's going to rejoice with you. It doesn't matter. You could be a Christian for as long as you're a Christian, for many, many years. And your family members who aren't Christians aren't still, they're not rejoicing with you that you're in Christ. Probably just the opposite in many ways for us, right? We know what that's like. So they said he rejoiced with him greatly. They would not be rejoicing if they had not received Christ because you can only rejoice with another person who's being baptized if you know Christ yourself. Huh? can only rejoice in that way. That's why we're going to rejoice today, because we know, because we've been there, because he's changed us. So it's beautiful and fitting picture of salvation in Christ and life in him. So again, what are the implications? I am going to ask you to turn again to Romans 6. I'm going to be preaching on this when we get to Romans 6, but you get a little foretaste uh, today. I'm sure by the time we preach on this, you'll long forgotten what I've said this morning. So it'll be fresh and new for you at that time as well. There will be some overlap, but Romans 6, 1 through 4, then 11 through 14. Because Paul now is equating the Christian life and our sanctification with our baptism. And there's meaning, there's meaning to that. It means something for us. So it says this, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he's talking about us saved by grace and doesn't have a hold on us. So people might say, well, let's just sin since we're not going to get in trouble for it. Paul said, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. Here's how it works. Are we to sin? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's living the Christian life. Walking means our manner of life, how, how we live. Then 11, uh, 11 through 14, he goes on to say, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and the members of your instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. So there's a lot of ideas going on there, but a main feature of this is the baptism. He's equating a baptism and being raised up in Christ with how we live as Christians. And that and that's good. He appeals to baptism as he talks about our sanctification. That's a big deal. That's really good. He said, you've been buried. And that word means you're buried. When you're dead, you get buried, right? So you in other words, we're to die to self. So it's the idea is in our baptism, when you're baptized, when you're going down, that's a symbol and a picture of being buried. to so say, I am no longer myself. I don't belong to me anymore, right? I belong to Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. He is my King. He is my Lord. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So it's a picture of that. And so we put away anything in ourselves 
that is contrary to his word. That's part of the implication of this. We're buried with Christ. We die to ourselves. The old man is gone. The old thoughts, ways, motives, intentions. I know we still wrestle with them. and We'll we'll flesh that out when we get to Romans. But that's the idea. And that's shown in, in being buried with him, among other things as well. To be dead to self and to sin, to be alive to Christ is everything for us, right? If you're a Christian this morning, you should have, there shouldn't be a higher desire than that. To be dead to yourself, man. I'm dead to me. Forget about my thoughts, my feelings, my things that I want, that I think are going to be, and what's going to please my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a great struggle that we all have. That's the battle that we're in, right? Because we want to please Christ. We want to be dead to self. We want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ if we're truly in him because we've been buried with him. To be dead to self and sin, alive to Christ is everything for us. We're done. We should be done playing these silly little games, you know, kind of entertaining sin, playing on the edges. We're done with the sinful thoughts, empty, useless things that we do to bring satisfaction to our lives, to think that we're going to like, or so the people will like us and compromising our... We're done with that. That's part of being buried with Christ, man. All right? I'm done. I'm done with myself. I'm living fully for Jesus Christ. So we've been freed from these useless things in our life, and that's what that shows in many ways. Our minds, our hearts, our lives, our thoughts, our intentions, our actions are to be devoted to Jesus Christ. Is that true for you? Is that true for us this morning? Is that where our devotion lies? Is that where our hearts are in our lives? To be buried, to be dead to self and alive to Christ, that's what that means. I am done with me. I am all yours, Jesus. I want to be faithful in my thoughts and my words, no matter what it means to me or for me. Our food and our drink is to do the will of the Father. That's what it means. You are buried with him, right? Buried and raised up. We're not, when he says we're raised up, we're not fighting this fight alone, but it's in his strength and his power and his spirit. Amen. Praise God. So we're not, it's not like before. Baptism is a picture of our salvation, but it's also a picture of our sanctification as we're raised up with him. Paul says to walk in newness of life. So when we're buried with him, understand we're dead to self because we're alive in Christ. To be buried with him means that all the benefits of Jesus' death, all the benefits belong to you. Your sins are paid for in full. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're reconciled. You're no longer under the guilt and punishment of sin. Buried. He died for you. You died with him. The benefits that he died belong to you if you're in Christ. And then he says to be raised up to newness of life. That does speak of our Christian life. That does speak of our sanctification. We're no longer under the power of sin. That's a big deal. And that's what Paul's talking about. We've been washed. and We've been cleansed. So in, in verses 11, check out verse 11 and 12. He says, that, or 11 through 13, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. And then verse 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Do not, verse 13, present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Sin will not have dominion over you. So listen to this. When we're raised up to newness of life, verses 11 through 13, that's volition as a Christian. That is your volition. That is the battle that you have. That, that is something where you're making that choice to follow Christ or to not, to love him or to love yourself, to walk in obedience or to walk in sin. You have that power by the Holy Spirit in you to say yes or no to sin. You understand? 
That's a big deal. And that is tied in with your baptism because not only are you buried with him and your sins forgiven, but you've been raised up with him to newness of life. Are you walking in newness of life? Or sin dominating you still? That still have a hold on your life. If you're a true Christian, you have, there's, there's victory in Jesus Christ over that. Right? There's a volition. He says, the life of the believer, he says, consider yourself. You consider yourself dead to sin. Don't let it. It's going to try to reign over you, but don't you let it. And you have the power of Christ in you not to. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin. Why do you keep doing that? You don't have to by the power of the Holy Spirit. But present yourself as an instrument of righteousness. You know what an instrument is? It's a tool. You're a tool. You're a utensil in the hand of God. That's all we are. Consider yourself like that. Don't think too highly of yourself. God's lucky to have me. No, no, no. We're blessed to have God. We're nothing but tools, man, just in his hand. Be one that's sharp and be willing to be used by him. We're tools. We're an instrument in the hands of our master to do his will and to fulfill his purposes. That's the Christian life. It has nothing to do just with your desires or what you want or what you over. What does Jesus Christ want from me? How does he want me to live? How am I supposed to handle this situation? I'm a tool in his hand. Understand? This isn't, and listen, this isn't some psychological method. This isn't some kind of way of, you know, analyzing and going through this and through that. This isn't some glorified self-help. It's not that. It's not trying to do harder. I'm going to try harder and be better. It's not like a Tony. Remember Tony Robbins, if you're a little bit older? Those late night seminars you'd watch on television? How wonderful you could be if you just you know think about this and do that? Nobody here remembers Tony Robbins? <laughs> One. Okay. All right, that personal motivational speaker, how you can make your life so great and all that stuff. He's still around. Um, listen, it's not that. What he's talking about here is understanding that he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You understand? That's part of being raised up with Christ. So 1 Corinthians tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, listen, because of that, no temptation's overtaking you except that which is common to man. Don't think that, oh, well, my sin has a special category, or my temptations are different, or I went through this and that, so now I can't do it. If you've been raised up with Christ, this happens to you. Understand? Nothing's new under the sun. There's nothing that, that God doesn't know or things that haven't happened in the past in different ways. So people try to claim this unique situation and this is why I do the things that I do. Wait a minute, if you're a Christian, no, you've been raised up with Christ. That power of sin's been broken, man. Don't let it, it hasn't overtaken you. God is faithful and he will not let you to be untempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He'll provide a way of escape. Don't present your members to, to sin right? Don't consent in that way. Don't be an instrument of sin. He's given us that out in that way. Past sins are forgiven. You've been raised up with Christ. Don't live in the guilt of your past sins, man. So many people that I know, oh, because I did this, you know, can God really forgive me? Does he really love me as much as he loves? Yes, he does, because you've been forgiven. You've been raised up with Christ. First Corinthians 6 tells us this, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, and idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They haven't repented. They haven't been regenerated. They're not believing in Christ. Such were some of you. See? We're forgiven in Christ. We're, but you were washed. That's a reference to regeneration. 
and can allusion to baptism as well. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. There's victory over sin in Christ Jesus, walking in newness of life, being raised up with him. This all plays in part of our baptism, and we see this picture, the symbolism of it. So it's, it's past, knowing that your past sins are forgiven. You don't have to live in the guilt of that. You know, it's just so tiresome sometimes to hear people live, well, can God really forgive me? Yes, he has. Don't you believe that? Stop living in that. But then there's also the other side of that. Sometimes you're seeing yourself because of sins that have been committed against you. And I'm talking about real sins committed against you, whether they're spiritual, emotional, physical sins committed against you. It's being raised up with Christ causes us to see all of that in light of God's providence. Do you understand? That's a big, big deal for us. We see those things in the light of God's providence. So everything, everything, everything that happened to you brought you to the point where you are today if you're in Jesus Christ. So you can look back and say, as bad as that was, as terrible as that was, in God's providence, it brought me to, it's part of what brought me to where I'm at today. Right? So I don't need to let that have a hold on me. I could see even those bad things that happened to me, not just the bad things that I did, but the bad things that happened to me that have scarred me, that have psychologically wounded me. I don't need to live there because I see it in the light of God's providence. And all of that has brought me to the place where I'm at today. So many of us love to dwell on the sin of what happened to us when we were young, what happened to us when we were little. What happened, and I'm not saying there's a place for that, but you can't live there, man, if you're a Christian because you've been raised up with Jesus Christ doesn't have a power over you, man. So we see it in the light of God's providence. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be in Jesus Christ this morning. Joseph is a beautiful example of that. I don't have to tell you. You know this, but in Genesis, Genesis 50, 18 through 20, his brothers hated him. His brothers beat him. His brothers were jealous of him. His brothers wanted to kill him. His brothers sold him into slavery. Imagine that happening to you. Your own sibling saying, I hate you this much. And who do you think you are? And we want to kill you, but instead of killing you, we're just going to ship you off, never to see you again. How would you feel if your brother did that to you? Or your sisters did that to you? That's psychological scarring. That hurts hurts, man. But he was raised up with Jesus Christ. Right? So he could say this. His brothers also came to him and they fell down because after their father died, they were afraid that Joseph, like them, would take it, you know, probably what they would have done. If you're not converted, you know, you're going to kill them. Now it's time to get even with you. Kind of like on the Godfather, they waited for the, for the mom to die before they killed Fredo, right? You remember that. <laughs> His brothers also came to him and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't fear, don't be afraid, for I am in the place, I'm sorry, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me. And a lot of people, the stuff that they did against you, they meant it for evil. They wanted to hurt you. They wanted to scar you. They wanted to fulfill their own lust. That's, that's right. Or their own sinfulness. They meant it for evil. But here's the trick, and here's what you need to understand. Even in the midst of that, God meant it for good. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to call it according to his purposes. He meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see that? So many of us, we might be over, okay, the past sins are bad, 
but what about what happened to me and how scarred I am and I need to go through this and I need to go through that. Again, I don't want to delegitimize that or make light of that, but if you've been raised up with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the power to say, I see it in the light of God's providence and it stunk when I went through it. And even when I think about it, it's terrible now, but God redeems that and uses it for good and I'm here now because of what went through that. All right? And he could put me in a position to help others who've gone through what I've gone through. So if you had an abortion in the past, yeah, that was terrible. That was awful. But in God's providence, you're here now. And you could talk to those thinking about getting an abortion and say, no, don't do it. Because I know what that's like. You understand? You see? You've been raised up with him to walk in newness of life. Positionally, that means positionally, where we're at in, in God's eyes, we're in a place to live this way. I know that it seems impossible. I know that it seems tough. But this is exactly where we're able to live, and it's because of our being raised up with him. So one more reading. We're coming to the end here. Colossians 3. Just turn there back to Colossians. And we'll just... It's a little bit... Um, Different context, not talking necessarily about the being raised up in, in baptism, but actually being raised up in Christ, but walking in that newness of life. He says this, if then you've been raised with Christ, beginning in verse 1, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on that which is above, not things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death whatever remains earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil, desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So he says, but you're raised up with Christ. This stuff doesn't have a hold on you as much as you think it does, man. You're letting it hold you. That's what we do. All of us do that. We love that sin so much more than we love Christ even at that time. And we say we're battling against it. We're battling against it. But at that moment, at that time, we, we're, we do the opposite of what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. He says, Lord, keep me from willful sins. We go right into that pit of willful sins because we want to satisfy desire or lust, whatever it is. Understand? He says, you don't have to do that. You've been raised up with Christ Jesus. Put that to death. He who that's in you is greater than he who's in the world. He says in verse 7, And these two we once walked. This is how we lived. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's no Greek, no Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all. Put on then as God's chosen and beloved ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. This is who we are in Christ. This is the reality. It's not a pipe dream, man. It's not just something that's out there. Again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection in any way. That's not what I'm getting at. But I'm saying there's progress in our sanctification through this. And our baptism shows that to a degree. So you say, how, man? How, pastor? How do I do this? How do I do this? It's, I mean, it's not, there's not like a profound answer. It's like, are you in the Word? Are you really in the Word of God? Do you take the Word of God seriously? Do you actually seek to obey it? Do you actually read and say, I want to do this, and I'm going to do this no matter how I feel, right? That's, that's a big deal. Are you on your knees? Are you praying to God? 
Are, are you relying on him? So how do I do? This is how. This is how we walk in that newness of life. Are you serious about learning? Are you serious about growing? Are you serious about applying the word of God? Do you believe that the Lord can really change and does change people? That's it. That's, that's, that's what we're called to do. Do you trust the truth more than your own feelings? That's a big deal. Today, everybody trusts their feelings. This is how I feel. But if I feel this way, if they feel they're that, if she feels he's that, then, then that's okay. Our feelings, they're, they're fallen too. They mislead us. They, they're, they're not good guides for us, right? Well, I feel this way. You can feel this way today and that way tomorrow. You know, I feel like strangling you. Does it make it okay to strangle you? I No. Come on. I mean, let's, let's be, we're Christians. Trust in the truth and not in your feelings. Stop being consumed with yourself, man. It's that simple. It's no longer about you. If you're a Christian, it's no longer about you. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about being the man you need to be for your wife, the husband you need to be. It's about being the wife that you need to be for your husband, no matter how you feel. Right? Because we're serving Jesus Christ. It's no longer about your felt needs, your unmet desires, your wild lust, your broken dreams. No. It's your focus on Jesus Christ, Christ who is your life, because you were buried with him in baptism. Right? He died for you, and you died to yourself, and you've been raised up with him to newness of life. That means he lives in you to work and to will his way and to let you know that sin does not have the power over you. That you, you need to walk in that form. Right? There's no struggle going on, of course. All that's true. But it doesn't have to be our master. Baptism is a picture of this. It holds the promise of forgiveness of our sins and, 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 and victory over sin. Amen? And we're going to see that today. So that's why I want you guys, this was not one long commercial. This isn't kind of the, the hook. Now, now, because you heard all this, come to the baptism. You should want to go to the baptism anyway. If you can make it. Please come, because this is, it's more than just the, the symbolic picture of what's happening. It's the beauty of God's Spirit working in our hearts and in our lives.